This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 33. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 33, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Welcome to our returning listeners and uh, hello to our new listeners. If you're new and this is your first podcast, well, you have a lot of catching up to do because there's a lot of good people on this show. Anyhow, uh, one of the good people that we have on today, which I'm really, as usual, always excited, no matter really who we have on, because everybody we have on just has great information to share and for you to cherry pick. And today's guest is uh, no exception. Joe Barisi is on today. Queens of the Stone Age, Coheed and Cambria, uh, Jesus Lizard, Bad Religion, Melvin's Caius, Tool. Joe's a badass. And the, the funny thing is, is that for being such a badass, he's the most laid back, relaxed guy, not a very uh, loud, boisterous fellow, at least in the interview. And... Uh, what a super nice guy. As I was doing our Skype call, I was just thinking to myself, this kind of sucks. I wish I was, I, I wish I had the financial ability to actually travel to all the people that I interview. Now, of course, I could do that in the Bay Area, but Joe's in LA and, uh, you know, just based on money, time, schedule, it's just not always possible to go down into LA or uh, across the country or in Europe or wherever just to uh, interview somebody. So Skype kind of just does the trick. So there, Joe Barisi is on today. So that's that. Uh, what do I have to tell you about? You know, I was, from time to time, I check in with the, uh, I, I take a look at the Future of Music Coalition website. That's futureofmusic.org. If you do record music, I think it's super important to realize that the recording industry cannot really exist without musicians and without uh, music clients to record. So it's kind of like, um, you know, if you're a business, a small business, which we all are, and you want to survive and you do all of your networking and hanging out with all of the other business owners, that's okay because you can get good tips and tricks from them about how to run your business. But if you don't pay attention to your customers, you're not going to have any business. So Future Music Coalition is great because it really focuses on um, issues with regards to supporting artists and musical artists. And I think that um, if you can, take some time, go over there, futureofmusic.org, read through some of the things and, and really take a, you know, take a small percentage of your time if your time is you know, taken up by, I don't know, uh, console repairs or uh, just so much recording that you just have no time for anything else, at least take a small percentage of your time to go and uh, support the issues that uh, are brought up on Future of Music. Because you support the musicians, that comes back and we all benefit because we need to support our customers and those are our customers. And many of us are musicians anyway, so it's kind of a no-brainer. So that's my uh, bit of activism for today. Go support Future of Music Coalition. Check it out. Subscribe to their newsletter. And there you go. Hey, so talking about support, um, I just want to give a shout out to all of you. All of you who listen to this podcast, 
I have to thank you deeply because we have broken a record this month in July. Uh, we typically get around 12,000 downloads a month, typically. This month of July, we have broken the record. We have now officially entered into the 13,000 mark. So each month the show continues to grow, and I just am deeply appreciative that all of you listen to this show and you get something out of it. I know I say it time and time again, and I know it probably wears thin, and I, and I say it with, with great sincerity and no amount of bullshit. I really appreciate all of you listening, all of you sending me messages, sending me suggestions for guests. And while I've said it before also, I can't always, I don't always reply in a timely manner. Sometimes, most of the time I do, most of the time on Facebook I do, but sometimes on email I, I tend to drag my feet because I, I start to type out long emails and then I save them as drafts and come back to them when I get interrupted for some reason, whether it's a music client or my kids or, or my wife or whatever. And then I kind of drop the ball and don't send those emails. Anyway, long story short, I just am really super thrilled and very happy that you all are tuning in. So thank you from the bottom of my heart, sincerely, for listening. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to bring you this show. And uh, since the show has started and since we are on our 33rd episode, I will tell you that all time we are at over 80,000 downloads we're approach. we're 20,000 downloads shy of 100,000 downloads. That's amazing. That is truly amazing to me that I did this and somebody gave a shit to listen. So that's that. That's, that's, that's my sincere thank you uh, to, for today and appreciating, uh, you know, I don't want to call you my customers. You're my peers. You're, you're my, uh, my comrades out there in recording. And so, uh, yeah, cheers. I'll, I'll go make another cup of coffee uh, during the interview while you're listening for that. Okay. Anyhow, Joe Barisi on Working Class Audio. Thanks for tuning in. Joe Barisi right here. What's happening, Joe? All right, man. I'm good. So have you had an opportunity to listen to any of the other podcasts? I have. I was actually just checking out Michael Beinhorn's because I ran into him a couple weeks ago, and I actually read part of his book. I'm, I'm in the midst of reading it right now as well, so checking it out. Yeah. Oh, it's a great book. It's awesome, yeah. I know that you've done some work with him. Yeah, we um, worked on Social Distortion for a brief moment and also on the tail end of the whole record, Celebrity Skin. Um, I was at Record Plant doing some vocals and Paul Northfield was at Conway cutting guitars. So that's about the extent of it, but was uh, friendly over the years. Was that White Heat, White Light, White Trash? It was the start of it, yeah. It was, um, we were up in Bearsville, New York, we were tracking the whole band and we had an actual eight track two inch and a 16 track two inch. It was pretty cool locking them up. I've never heard low end so solid on a pair of NS10s ever because the head bump is, you know, a seven and a half IPS just keeps dropping. So it, it was actually pretty incredible. The slower the speed, the bump, the head bump goes down in frequency? Yeah, I think, uh, I think on a normal Studer 800, the head bump is around 80 hertz at, at, uh, at 30 IPS. So if you have to speed, it drops down to like 40. And then if you have to speed again, it drops down to 20. Oh, so wow. Most NS10 wouldn't even allow that kind of frequency to go through. So you can get some really tight bottom end without the speakers farting out at all. When he pointed out to me that he did um, Social D and the Ozzy Osbourne, the Osmosis record at, on that that seven and a half machine, 
once he pointed it out and I went back and I listened, I was like, oh, there's a similarity in the drums. The kick drum on. I, I asked Dave Bianco, Dave Bianco mixed uh, the Osmosis record. And uh, I remember asking him, I, I probably played Perry Mason a thousand times in a week or something. It was one of my most inspirational moments because the kick drum was just so big. I remember just listening to it over and over again while we were trying to get drum sounds on Social D, but obviously it was a different kind of band, different player, different everything. So it, it never quite got that massive. But, and I didn't end up, or Dave didn't mix White Hot. I actually don't even know who mixed that record. Maybe it was John Travis or something. Yeah, I've got the record. I, I can't remember who mixed it. But um, just to get you acclimated to the show a bit before we totally dig in, the focus of the show has traditionally and is traditionally more fixated around the lifestyle, the business, the survival skills of staying in audio. And it's, you know, we talk a little gear, but we I mostly will ask you a lot of questions just about like, how you've made it this far and, and, and how, how it's been for you. And it's all about like kind of random questions as they come based on your responses. I don't have anything written down. I have some ideas of some things, but uh, that's about it. Cool. It's like a conversation, man. That's what I like about it. It's very, uh, uh, Jason Gossman was the first guy that turned me on to your podcast. And uh, I was like, that's just refreshing because it's, it's, it's like a conversation between two people that other people get to listen in on. So that's it. All right. Uh, how long have you been doing this? Um, I would say uh, 1988 is when I officially moved to California from Florida. So I've been working. At, at that point, when I moved out here, I got a job working at Cherokee Studios. and But it wasn't being an assistant. It was more soldering, and, uh, putting together A-Ranch modules. And I was also repairing guitars at a guitar shop at night. So I was, it wasn't to me, I wasn't really officially in the music business. So I started, so I started working full time as an assistant, which was two months after. Uh, so, so beginning of 1989, basically. And then it took a good five years of assisting before I actually had enough clients and was getting more engineering gigs. So somewhere around 1993, I'd say, is when I, I became quote unquote an engineer or I, I, I've been freelance the whole time, but uh, I would say somewhere around. So however many years that is, I can't count that fast. <laughs> no math. I promise. No math. No math. Perfect. Um, that's interesting. Uh, isn't your background and, and your, your college education revolve around music theory? It does. I, when I, first went to college, I went to University of South Florida. I was really into studying classical guitar. There was a really great guitar teacher there. Basically, it was sort of just wanted to learn as much about music as I possibly could because I knew, I mean, I just, I just loved it. I mean, I would practice guitar eight hours a day, nine hours a day. So I went to University of South Florida. And at the same time, they had these, besides taking theory classes, and they had electronic music classes, which was really fascinating. It was a recording studio. And there wasn't really like, it wasn't really drums and guitars and bass. It was more like synthesizers and patchable things and drum machines. But it was still some recording. And then uh, about a year and a half in to that, it kind of did away with the guitar program, actually. So I, I ended up playing through my guitar teacher at the time, who's still a kick-ass guitar player, Joe Braccio. He basically told me about a guy named Juan Mercadal, who was one of the 
greatest classical guitarists in Florida at the time, I'm just the old Cuban guy. And uh, he was at the University of Miami. So I applied with, uh, you know, like playing uh, Randy Rhodes' D and a couple rock and roll type songs done classical style. And I got in the program. That was my, and, and it was a music uh, engineering program. So basically kind of the forefront of production and engineering, but really based a lot on, it was a four-year program. There was a lot of, you know, the normal stuff, the calculuses and the physics and the English and a minor in business and a minor in communications and um, acoustics and some crazy things. So so that that's my formal education. I, I basically, honestly, I didn't even graduate. They just gave me my diploma at the very end because I was a credit shy. I had already moved out to California and got a job. And they, they said, well, you know, you need your diploma. And I said, well, I'm going to quit my job to get a diploma to go get a job. I don't think so. Let's just put it in the mail and we'll call it a day. So that's what they did. That's cool. That was it, really. Where, so, did, the, uh, where did the electronics, um, the understanding of electronics come into play? It, it was There was a lot of circuit theory classes. It, it was really for brainiacs. And I wasn't that person. It was It was really... We shared classes with people in um, mechanical and electrical engineering. So it was way above my head. I mean, honestly, now I could probably figure out what was going on. But then it was, you know, I learned what, a, what an amp is and what a volt is. And, and, and 90% of everything that I learned uh, doing what I do is really kind of being in the equation. I think, I think it's sort of important to start working first. And then go to school because I think you absorb a lot more of the theory and the knowledge once you know how much of it you really need. There's there's a lot of useless information uh, given to you in school, but there's a lot of important stuff too. But you don't really know what's important, what's useless till you've applied it later on in your life. I could totally see that. So you came out to California, and why did you choose California? There was an AES show here. It was like a, a school sponsored kind of. You know, road trip. You know, a group of us came out here to California, and and I, honestly, I was I was like a rock guy back then. So I came out here, and KNAC was on the radio, and Iron Maiden was playing, and I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So, uh, and I knew where this is where all the studios were, and this is un, unlike today where you can't read credits. I was familiar with record credits and who produced what and what studios they came out of, and. You know, I, I used to wait religiously for the Mix Magazine, LA Studio Directory, and look at every room, who managed it, what kind of gear they had, things like that. So I, I knew this was the place to move to. So and I, and I had a friend living here at the time. So basically, I just packed it up and and pre graduation, like a credit shot, just bailed out and said, "I'm going to go to California and try to make a go of it." So that that was uh, December of '88 when that happened. I've stayed ever since. Actually, my parents were still living in Florida for um, maybe another 10 years or so before I decided to move them out here because I, I used to go home and visit them once a, you know, once a year. And um, it was just kind of, I, I knew they'd like the weather out here much better. And, and I've never left. Huh. Very good. And you came directly to Los Angeles, right? Yeah, you know, there was actually... Because I was such a metalhead at the time, I was really into stuff that was uh, done on shrapnel records. And Mike Varney was the dude. <laughs> and Luca Renick, who ran Prairie Sun, and all the, all the McAlpines and those records that I used to listen to religiously for, for technique were done at Prairie Sun. So I actually contacted 
prairie sun and Muka was so cool. He was like, sure, man, just come out here. If you've got a job, you know, we'll hire you for sure. Wow. So, so the, you know, the dilemma in my mind at the time was go to Prairie Sun and Cotati where there's one studio, but this guy's willing to take a chance or go to California or go to Los Angeles and, and uh, take a chance there where there's more opportunity theoretically because there's so many more studios. And I, I decided not to go to Cotati and just move straight to LA. Plus I had a friend here. So, you know, we, we got another person with us and there was three of us all living together in a three bedroom apartment. So it was it was like extending your college dormitory, but in California. <laughs> and was it a major culture shock for you or were you just like, oh man, this is great? I, I loved it. I mean, I had a lot of friends here and, um, you know, there was so much opportunity. I was like, so I was working at Cherokee during the day, repairing a range modules and, and soldering them. They were actually refabricating one of the first people that figured an A-range sounds killer. And there's no, not a lot of A-range consoles, maybe 13 or something in the world. So they, they had a custom A-range console, and then they decided to make those modules. So I was, I was a solder jockey in the back, just putting modules together and um, repairing guitars at night. It was awesome. There were so many bands out here. You'd hit the Sunset Strip, and you get to see music. And it, it just seemed like it seemed like an extension of Florida at the time, too, because even in Florida, when I was living there, there was so much music. I mean, the band could make a living playing gigs six nights a week in a, in a town and then go to the next town. That's the, I mean, it was a touring, a touring uh, state, really. And then it was kind of a culture shock when I moved out here because bands that do play six nights a week, three sets at night, four sets at night, and learning other people's music are pretty damn good bands. And, and I moved here. I mean, you and I could put a band together and play the whiskey tomorrow. It doesn't matter as long as we've got some money. You've got 10 songs, mostly original. So it, it just seemed weird to me that most of the bands out here weren't as educational and or schooled in writing because they never really had played any kind of cover songs or never toured or never. That was the biggest culture shock for me other than, you know, I thought I, I really thought it would be a whole other level when I moved to L.A., but it, it really wasn't. Was there more activity in L.A. as compared to where you'd come from? Yeah, there, there was a lot of activity. I mean, there's I, I mean, there's so many great bars in a row. At the time, there was Gazzari's and the Whiskey and the Chubador, and you go to the Rainbow and have some food. You go across the street to the, the Central, which now is the Viper Room. And, um, there's so many venues and so close and so much music. It, it really was a good time. And budgets were great back then. There's so many studios. I literally, uh, in two days, you know, you have a Thomas guide to figure out where you're going. So I'd I'd have my mix LA mix magazine directory and I'd write down, you know, all the studios I'm going to drop my discography or resume off to whatever it was at the time. And, um, I'd get a Thomas guide out and chart your course, uh, your course. And, um, basically I could cruise down one street and hit 30 or 40 studios. It's incredible. I mean, it's, wow. that's just unheard of. I mean, it's not like that now that most of them are closed, but back in that day, it was, you can literally go two blocks, just park your car, hit eight or ten studios in two blocks, and get back in your car, drive another half mile, park, do the same thing. And I got rid of about 40 resumes instantly. Huh. Yeah, the idea of taking a resume to a studio at this point in time, I don't know. It's If a kid were to do that today, would do you think that that's just like not really the smart thing to do? Well, it, it's weird. Um, 
when I first opened my studio, I had a bunch of people that wanted to work for me. And I would, you know, as a Starbucks around the corner, I'd meet them all at Starbucks and have a nice one-on-one hour-long conversation and ask them questions. And it, it came down to people wanted to just skip all the educational part and the not it's like almost like it was a, a glamorous job or something you know and and it was a party and i'm like so i would ask people like so what is your favorite producer who are some of your favorite bands where did they record what kind of gear and, and why i mean it got down to what are the, the three polar patterns of a microphone that people couldn't answer and it was just appalling to me so there was one person in particular that could lay out perfectly. I love the Chili Peppers. They did a record here. This guy recorded it. This guy produced it. It was done on an API or it was done on a Neve or whatever. And so that person, to me, deserved the opportunity to go further. I didn't personally have any room in my arsenal. So I called up a major studio like Henson, which used to be A&M. And, and I think it's important to go to a place like that and, and put your discography in. No guaranteed job but to at least have some kind of structure coming up to see if this is really what you want to do. I mean, I worked under Garth Richardson for a long time, and then the first thing that I learned was if you can't get a food order right, you're never going to... I mean, why would you trust somebody to, to nowadays clean your files or tune your vocal or mic up a guitar cabinet? I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I do think dropping a resume off in a studio is a good deal. Uh, and, and if you can handle that and that, that the mentorship that you get from the you hopefully get from the, the elderly engineers that you're working for is, is an invaluable. I mean, I used to, I know you had Andrew Sheps on your, your podcast and I remember sitting in on sessions at University of Miami that Andrew Sheps was the engineer of, you know, would have a little uh, a recording studio and there'd be recitals from like five to 10-ish area. And then from 10 to nine in the morning, you could use the studio and Andrew would do a recital and Neil Avron and those guys. And uh, I would sit in on those. I learned more in those classes just watching those guys mic stuff up than, you know, all the four, three and a half years that I spent at UM. Sometimes in old films, they'll show like all the medical students on the upper balcony looking down at the doctors exactly. doing the work. I kind of wish that there was a studio scenario where you could have students behind plexiglass where you couldn't actually hear them in the studio, but you, they could hear you. And well, I think there was actually Alan Johannes uh, was just taking part of a uh, experimental thing with uh, PJ Harvey and Flood, and they did a thing in uh, I think it was in England. It was actually a museum where they had a recording studio surrounded by plexiglass, and they were in there making a song, like writing it, recording it, and part of the quote unquote museum. Uh, presentation was that you could sit in on it so you can literally go in and you know through the glass hear what was going on and and that was like a real life exhibit in a museum which i thought was pretty fascinating that's very cool yeah i think i would be uh i would have to have the glass like double-sided so i couldn't see them because i'd be like super self-conscious about who's watching us that guy think about my mic placement right now oh i better pull my pants up my uh my plumber's butt showing or whatever that yeah that would be a little nerve-wracking in many respects but but the experience of sitting in and observing somebody record is god it's just so valuable i anytime i mean it's still valuable to me and I've, you know, I've got a number of years under my belt, but to sit even with friends of mine and watch how they do things, 
I always, and I'm sure you get this a ton, like people, oh, can I just come in and sit in on the session and just, I won't say a word. No. It's, no. I always want to say yes in my heart, but I know that the dynamic will change in the room. And I'm always very hesitant. And when I do find somebody that's cool, I tend to like, oh, okay, here, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you lunch. I'll get you some money. You just stay put and everything's cool. And they, and good assistants are, are good assistants. And it sucks when they it, disappear. It's, it really is the individual. I mean, it's, first of all, I always say it's not a boys club. We're not in there partying. You know, if you have a band in recording, whether they're a, a massive band or a local band, people are intimidated by, you know, how many times have recorded a singer that doesn't want to hang out and sing in a room with a bunch of people. They want a one-on-one type thing. There are some exceptions to the rule. The party atmosphere works, but, but having extra faces in there doesn't really always help. So for me to have someone in a room with me, they'd, ha- they'd have to partake. And as much as I want to be the guy that, says, okay, you can watch me do this operation. I mean, I, I don't know. I explained it to a, a guy a couple of weeks ago who wanted to do exactly this. He wanted to come in and sit on the session. But he he was the same type of guy. So I don't I don't call the local hospital and go say, yeah, I'd really like to be a brain surgeon, but I don't want to go to med school for eight years. I just want to hang out and watch you operate on some brains. Can I can I do that? You know, obviously that's ridiculous, but that's that's sort of how the younger generation is thinking right now to sound like an old man because I am. Um, I, you know, when I first moved out here, I worked at three or four different studios because I wanted to learn different consoles. There, I didn't know how to use an SSL, but I knew an SSL was a, a huge console to learn. It was in most major studios. So I went to uh, USC and took a class there for two days, paid money out of my pocket to educate myself on how to use a console. And most of the kids don't want to do that. They 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 just want to sit in on a session and think, hey, I really want to learn how to mix. I can just watch you mix. But you know, I don't want to have to sit here and explain to you what a bus is or what an oxen is. At least if you invest in yourself, those are the people that I want on my team with me. I mean, I've I've had a few guys that came out to France and did this um, mix with the masters thing, mm-hmm. and and you know they were all super nice guys, and it was really humbling to know that somebody would save an incredible amount of money to go out there and, and to spend a week with you. Um, and there's there's some guys, one of them in particular moved here, and he's he's a he's a hustler, and he's he's a good dude. He invests in himself. He's taken some of my workshops. He takes other workshops. He buys gear I mean, it's, it's those guys that you know are really gonna be a step above and those are the guys that you really need to harvest and take them under your wing and educate them it's there's there's always the you know the one or two guys that play guitar in a band that want to learn how to record their guitar better that that you know i mean you can't can't hurt to ask but i, I would never even have thought to ask a guy like martin birch in my day hey man can i sit down on you doing an iron maiden record because i want to learn you know what i mean like I would I would personally go study theory and study music and do things that would educate myself to be Martin Birch, not just try to cut all the corners. You're so. you're one of very few people that I've talked to that has ever even brought Martin Birch's name up. And I'm a Martin Birch fan. Uh, so that's in my day he was he was the superhero. Well how you're yeah. like you're in your forties, right? Uh, I just turned fifty this year. Okay, okay. I'm forty five and oh man. 
uh, I would look at his name and go, oh my God, Martin Birch. He, and like, just knew, knew where every studio that he recorded at was and every band that he did and why you put on a record and it sounds so amazing. It's because Martin Birch did this record and you educated yourself on, not only did you educate yourself on uh, different studios and different consoles, but why did these records sound like they do, you know? And, and that to me is the art of production. I mean, you did I don't get that these days. I get I get people that go to a six month class or an eight month class or ten whatever it is and come out think their producers are ready. And I'm like, it's just it's insane to me because you know, you know, there's no just like when I when I was talking about bands that played covers in Florida were so more well educated musically because they've studied other people's arrangements, key signature, time signatures, keys and things. I tell you, if there was a mix with the masters that I would pay dearly for. I would, I would sit in a room with that guy and just listen and not talk for a week straight. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because um, I also got to work with Mike Stone. I never worked with Martin Birch, but I got to work with Mike Stone, who was another hero. He, he um, basically engineered for Roy Thomas Baker, came through China and worked on the first six Queen records. He produced News of the World. He did Asia and Journey. So many cool records. And... It really was an education in the art of mic placement, the choice of microphone. But even before the choice of microphone, it was the choice of the spot in the room where you put the instrument. We would move a drum kit around for two, three days until the drum had, the, the kick drum had such enormous low end. I mean, instead of reaching for an EQ right away, which is what most people do now. I think most most of the records done now are done, um, they're fabricated in a, in a computer because you have so much control. But you don't need that kind of control if you actually knew the art of mic placement, mic choice. You know, there's so many things. This is why I sort of I kind of started my own workshops because the, the 18 people that I uh, interviewed that wanted to work for me, I was like, Fuck, if you're paying 20 grand a year to go to recording school and coming out not knowing what a polar pattern is, you're learning the wrong stuff. I've made some records. I'm going to show you what you need to know. I'd be like the guy that says you don't need to learn that equation from calculus, but you do need to learn this right equation right here. How to calculate impedance on a 4 by 12 You know, things like that, the important stuff. So studying the studying the Martin Birch records was, was your education. Mm-hmm. And I don't. There's none of that anymore to me. I, mean, I can't remember the last time I asked somebody who their favorite producer was and they were able to pinpoint a person. You know, when you have a thousand singles in your iPod or your phone, there's, there's no such thing as, oh man, Martin Birch or Mutt Lang or blah, blah, blah is my favorite producer. It's just, it's, you know, this is my favorite song or whatever, or my favorite beat. But... Uh, you know, I walked in on the studio the other day and three guys sitting behind computer screens. I was like, what the fuck, man? There's no music being made here. You know what you're doing, you know? <laughs> Fixing all the things that you could have fixed by moving the mic over a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you're um, just, th- what we were talking about earlier about, you know, students or not just students, but people who just want to, you know, hey, I want to do brain surgery. Can I just stop by the hospital and check it out? Maybe I can learn something. It's like, that's that's sort of the request that I get, you know, which is not not just negative on anybody in particular. It's just it's, that's sort of 
I think even like, you know, because people expect music to be free, they expect the education behind it to be free. They, they you know, I mean, everybody expects everything to be free, but it's, there's a handful of guys. I've had some great assistants through the years and they're really a cut above the rest. I mean, there's, there, here's an, an example. A couple of weeks ago, um, I asked a guy who was working with me to put some microphones away. So as he was putting them away, he noticed that part of a clip was broken. So instead of, putting it away, which most people would do and go, whatever, or put some gaff tape around it instantly and say, okay, this is messed up, whatever. This guy came in and was like, hey, man, I think I could fix this. Can I take it home with me? And came back the next day and had new screws and new bushings on it, went to the hardware store in his dime and came back and handed me a perfectly good mic clip. Those are the kind of guys that you just go, okay, that's the person I can trust to, hey, I need you to go over here and do a vocal with whoever. Or can here's a drive, can you go through and do a clean version of this session for me or make an edit for me? You know what I mean? Is there you can the guys that just are cut above definitely show themselves. I remember when I was growing up as a guitar player, I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about the guitar. You would you would have to wait a month for the new guitar player magazine to come out. Then you would read it from top to bottom and you would learn well, Eddie Van Halen is using a blah, blah, blah pickup. And then you you couldn't go on the internet and have instant access to anything. You had to go to the library and research. And, and there was a, a method and you you talk to people. There was always the guy on the corner who played guitar and he liked Robin Trower. And, you, you know, you discussed things and you went back and forth. And it, was, it was an education. And now with everything's instant access, if you want to learn what guitar pickup Eddie Van Halen used on what record you can go on the internet and see a million people's, you know, response. Like you're all entitled to have an opinion, mm-hmm. which I, you know, and, and, and I, I, I can't rag on any forms in particular, but, but uh, not everybody should have an opinion. I mean, I guess if you have an opinion, you shouldn't be allowed to voice it on a forum with professionals. Maybe I don't know what I'm trying to say that that doesn't make me seem like a dick. I'm just, it's just there is a sense of entitlement. I mean, people people think, well, I don't pay for the music, or I didn't have to go to college, and I can go to Guitar Center and buy an M box and shove it in my, you know, on my iMac and make records, and I should be entitled to Facebook Martin Birch and go, hey, what kick drum did you use, and how'd you do that without me actually knowing that there's a kick drum on that song or whatever, or, or you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's it, it is there is a sense of entitlement. It, and it's, I think it's just based on the fact that everything is instant access now. I mean, it's, everybody's got an opinion. It's, it's valid in their minds because they can put it on the internet. That's all real. I get frustrated by people who've got more opinions than experience. Yeah. I mean, how do you even have an opinion if you don't have any experience? You know what I mean? You, you go on a forum right now and you can say, you know, uh, you, I, well, I heard that it, it was blah, blah, blah. Well, who'd you hear it from? person with an apron you know what i mean or <laughs> i'm looking at the i'm looking at the chart and i can see that there's a mid peak at 4.5 therefore it's probably a very mid-rangey microphone huh? well how is it mid-rangey you know what i mean i mean how do you know it's so you, you really believe the chart first of all how did the chart get drawn i mean and then second of all what's it miking is it miking a polytone amp that's super dark then you might need the 4.5 you know what i mean it's just it's none, there's nothing relative to anything, in my opinion. It's almost, 
I would compare it. I've had a lot of conversations recently. I don't know why uh, this conversation, but and I, and I'm sure it's this way in, in Los Angeles that it's my experience that I've observed immigrants come from other places to the United States and really seize the moment and their families work hard. You know, they're the people that open up like convenience stores or shops or whatever restaurants and they they've never had the opportunity and they come here and then they really just kick ass and they it's like, wow, you could do all this stuff in this country. I'll do it. And and they go through the the effort and they're hungry, whereas people some people in this country who already have all of this accessible to them just kind of go, oh, whatever. Let's just go to Starbucks and, re, you know, get on Facebook and maybe we'll yeah. figure it out. It's fascinating to me, first of all, that that someone would go to Starbucks and pay three bucks for a coffee, but they won't pay three bucks for a song. You know, right. I mean? so uh, there's your priority is right there. But with that being said, I, I've actually got you know, a dog recently, a new dog. And I, I bought the Caesar Milan, one of Caesar Milan's books and started reading, reading it. And, and just exactly what we said, his story is fascinating. He, I mean, he lived poor in Mexico and he knew he wanted to come to the United States and he had these goals and aspirations. And he, uh, you know, sat in a pool of water overnight until he could smuggle himself over the border. And then he didn't even speak English and he found a job dog grooming and he, he, he worked his way. He kind of had a vision and you have a luck, a lot of luck along the way, which is, you know, a lot of my career is the same thing. Working with good bands, it's a, it's a lucky break. It's not, it's not, you know, predestined or anything or it's all my doing it's there's a lot of luck involved um but the fact that he worked so hard is a whole sense of accomplishment and structure and and uh and and he talks about uh u.s dogs versus mexican dogs and how all the dogs are pampered here and it's it's kind of like american people in a way really i mean it's you know I, I, didn't even, I didn't even get off the couch and I can go to Amazon.com and order a battery. I don't even have to go to the store. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's easy, but I don't know. It's just, I understand exactly what you're saying, it's, but it's not going to change. It's going to seem like a, a bitter old man at some point, but it's not going to change. It's, but, but there are people that are genuinely have that fever in them that love music and love to do get better at what they do and they, they do creative things. And, and, you know, those are the people that you want to nurture. Uh, there's a couple of questions that I, I don't want to miss that came in on Facebook that, uh, speaking of Facebook, I posed, you know, I said, Hey, I'm going to be talking to Joe. Anybody got any questions? And, uh, some of these are, well, speaking of assistants, one one person says, "How is your new studio assistant, Annie?" Oh, that's my new dog. Oh, okay, okay. She's awesome. <laughs> my last studio dog. I don't know. You know, my last studio dog was named Bullet, and he was an incredible dog. And and actually, so many like he was on the cover of a Norwegian black metal newspaper because he got in a photo when I was working on Satyricon. And, He's in uh, some Chevelle video where they're doing a little back, uh, you know, in the studio conversation, the dogs and they're hanging out with them. And he's been credited for assistant spiritual guidance. And uh, and the last credit that he got was uh, on the last Soundgarden record. Chris Cornell gave him additional vocals on one song because he was howling while Chris was singing. It was so awesome. And uh, Annie's the new, she's the new dog. So she hasn't been on any records yet, but... Uh, She's a great studio dog. I don't understand this question. You're going to have to decipher this one. Somebody says, what's with the Kit Kat obsession? Um, 
I, you know, I, I think your whole life you kind of get obsessed with things. I, I was obsessed with guitars. I was obsessed with kinds of strings. At some point, you try every guitar string, try every pick. You get obsessed with guitar pedals. I'm still obsessed with pedals. So you collect pedals and, you know, the microphones, whatever. It's just stupid stuff. And then at some point, I started collecting, you know, I had a Spice Girls lollipop at one point. And then you open up the lollipop and you have a Spice Girls sticker. And then you can collect all 50 stickers. So, you know, so as a, you know, to keep the mood light in the studio, it's always, it's always funny. You know, you get a Spice Girls sticker and you super glue it on a road case or something. And, and it travels around with all your gear and things. And it's so at some point uh, I had a Japanese assistant and, and who doesn't love a Kit Kat? And in Japan, they have regional and seasonal Kit Kats. There's probably close to 200 kinds of Kit Kats in Japan. So at some point you, you, you know, you post a picture of a green tea Kit Kat and then somebody says, have you tried the blueberry Kit Kat? Here's a blueberry. And then before you know it, and, you know, I've had friends in Japan from working over there several times. They'll send you a care package with a dozen different flavors of Kit Kat. So yeah, it, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just, who, who doesn't enjoy a Kit Kat? Who doesn't like a Kit Kat? So tell me about your studio. Cause you actually, you have a studio that do you rent a building or own a building or I, I rent a building. Some friends of mine were there before me and it got to the, you know, it got to the point really where I was turning down records and, and I love my friend who I've worked at, I, you know, basically freelance. So you work everywhere. I worked at a sound city and a dozen other studios and I'd go to whatever, everywhere in the world and work. And, um, but being local, you know, budgets started dwindling. And, and at some point I couldn't pay a thousand or 1500 bucks a day anymore for studios. So I had all the gear I ever needed you know, I'd collect it. I'd leave it at mates rehearsal. It was a cartage place. When I worked, say, at South City, I would call and say, bring these cases. And they would bring these amps, these cases, and the guitars, whatever. And, uh, and But there would inevitably be a time where you're just like, oh, man, I just wish I had that tremolo pedal because it'd be perfect for this sound. And I had this tremolo pedal here. Or I wish I had that guitar amp. So maybe we'll do this guitar part tomorrow. Or maybe we'll just fudge it. But I, I always knew in the back of my it would be great to have my own place one day where I could say, okay, I need that. Here it is it's right here. So um, I was making a record and um, this place came up uh, for lease. And it, it actually, part of the history of it was, uh, it was called the Thursday Night Music Club. And Kevin Gilbert did, um, you know, a lot of stuff there. He, down the street was Bill Charles' place. That was a Tuesday Night Music Club. But the whole concept of guys jamming and writing music and and um that's where the first shell crow record was written so this was his personal spot and after he passed away it became another studio his manager took it over and then m audio moved in there for a while and then my friends took it over and frank black was in there and um so i took it over moved all my gear in there and, and throughout my stay since i took that ssl class when i first moved out here at usc it was taught by a guy named dick mcgillivray who was the head of the music department at usc he uh he always helped me out with gears like we're throwing these things out do you want them so he actually had a, a dnr console sitting there in storage it was costing him money to, to store it and he couldn't sell it because it was a donation from somebody to the music school so he gave me the console so i had a dnr riot in there for about a year but ultimately, I was either looking for a Neve or an SSL. And since it was a lot easier to track through outboard gear, 
I could get away with not having a knee, but mixing on an SSL seemed mandatory for me. So I ended up buying an SSL and putting it in there, giving it back to DNR. So it's just a room in Pasadena. It's it's one huge building, uh, 1,600 square feet, I think it is. And uh, it's cut down the middle, basically, in, a, in an odd shape, sort of modeled after the townhouse in London, because that's what Kevin, he worst at Hugh Padgham. And um, he loved the townhouse. And as it turns out, I have the console from the townhouse. So it all came back around. Which is oh, wow. So weird, right? So um, that's where it is. And it's kind of set up. In a, and, it, you know, all those, those you're talking about Mark Birchman, a lot of those records that were made were remote trucks back in the day. Studios didn't sound great. They just, if it sounded good, you know, you could put Deep Purple in a room and get a remote truck outside. You'd never say the acoustics in the Rolling Stones remote truck was great, but the acoustics in the room was fine. So for me, as long as it sounds good, I'm, you know, I don't overthink treatment or anything like that. I just, it sounded good in there. I put baffles up behind me when I'm mixing to tighten it up and I open it up and leave it completely wide open when I'm recording because it's, it's a very one-on-one atmosphere. It's very comfortable. And that was another uh, thing that I wanted to do is you know, working at studios where I worked at Sound City for, I'd say, out of my whole career of recording, that was my favorite studio. That in a place called Grandmaster, but I, I came up through Sound City. So it was always a comfortable studio, and, and I could see that in bands. It was, you know, if you're, if you don't think you're spending a million bucks a day and you can, you're not afraid to put your water on the, on the, you know, on the table or you're not afraid of your dog tracks and dirt, it's, everything's so comfortable. You actually, you perform better. But if you're walking to a studio and everything's super clinical and uptight and very nice and clean and people look at you, if you've got a crumb on the floor, you know, your, your attitude totally changes. And so my studio looks like my bedroom when I was 17 and it's got pictures everywhere. There's bookshelves with records and books on it and knickknacks and dolls and posters of my Kit Kat collection and, you know, props from the hangover movie and, and, you know, it's just, there's instruments everywhere. That's another important thing to me is you feed the creativity of an artist by psychologically just, just you know, you, you have an idea and you pick up an instrument and it's always be ready to record, basically. Garth, that's one thing that Garth always taught me. Just always have the mic ready. You never know when the inspiration's going to hit. So. Mm-hmm. so I've got instruments everywhere. Somebody, I, you know, might come in and pick up a marxophone start playing before you know it there's a microphone on it and you've got a marxophone part in a song or whatever or maybe it leads to another idea yeah just there's definitely a a wide swath of studio aesthetics across the world some you know whenever you like open like a mixed magazine you see like you know the whatever those best in uh class of 2015 or whatever articles that they have some of those places man i look i'm like yeah. Exactly. I don't want to work at Buck in there. Maybe I could do brain surgery in there, but can yeah. I can I bring a band in there and feel cozy and kick back and yeah. You 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 know, you spend a lot of hours a day. This is not a nine to five job, as you know. You spend a lot of time in a room, whether it's your bedroom or a studio or wherever it is. So it needs to be comfortable. And when when your mind is not focused on, oh my God, I got a breadcrumb on the floor. Or, or whatever, you know, you're just like, you're, you know, I, it, it all comes down to the same 
even just the way I mix, I mean, I don't want to think about it. If I have to think about what's passed in the channel one or what inserts over, that's why the kick drum is always in one. I, that's, I know I instantly reach for the kick and there it is. If I've got to keep moving things around, then it gets confusing to me. In my fact, as soon as I start thinking it's over. Hmm. Interesting. And how does, I mean, economically, how does the studio, like, how does that factor into your day-to-day -day life? Are you always like, oh shit, phone hasn't rung in a while or well, or are you are you one of those guys that the phone always rings well i you know i've i've been lucky the phone rings quite a bit but the studio for me is is um i mean financially in a, in a way it's a good thing i mean it costs money obviously so there, there's the things that people don't think about that's that's the one thing that people think if you work that the studio is free as well um but you know you know, it costs money. There's an electric bill. Yeah, that's my, that was going to be my question. What does the SSL do to an electric bill? Oh, it's crazy. It's like two grand a month. Wow. It's insane, right? But when you're paying 1500 bucks a day for an SSL room, then it's not so bad, really, to have your own SSL. Yeah. So, but you got to look at insurances. You got to look at, um, you know, liability. I mean, you got a guy that comes in and brings a 1950s Telecaster. That's an expensive guitar. So... You need, I had Weasel Zappling in and he brought in a, a guitar that Jimi Hendrix gave his dad. I'm like, you got to take that home every night, dude. Because, you know, there's a, something goes on. All my all my drives are in a safe every night, which is something I've never, ever seen in a studio. I'm like, doesn't it, you know, occur to you if there's a fire and this goes, at least the ship will be safe for all the things you've worked on. And that's, that's a liability. Someone can sue me and say, oh, man, we spent a month making this record and now I've got nothing to show for it. So... There, there are a lot of expenses, you know, um, but there's a lot of write-offs also, and, and there's a, there's a, also there's a, a, a calmness to know that if you don't work to twelve oh one or work work to one in the morning or two in the morning, you're not going to get charged overtime. So having the studio is a mandatory thing, but there there is definitely maintenance is a killer, you know. There's always, especially if you have a lot of old stuff. But I pride myself on knowing that ninety eight percent of my stuff is in top working order. And, you know, there's always something that's going to break. And right now I'm actually off and I've got a pair of LA3s out getting fixed. And, you know, and, then, and the other interesting thing about having a studio is further educate yourself, man. You know, I, I've, I've got today, I'm going to go play a guitar head that got sent to me. I'm going to check it out. And I've got some guitar pedals and my friend James comes over and we, uh, we do all kinds of crazy tests, man. We put, you know, when was the last time you checked out half a dozen guitar cables or, reamps or ribbon mics or you know i'll sit there and we'll, we'll we'll do a couple different performances through a di and reamp it through a guitar head and change out microphones and re-record the same performance and then educating yourself on what different dynamic mics sound like and you're getting super scientific about it too putting them in exactly the same spot on a 4x12 and and um, guitar pickups I was so bored one day at a Nash guitar and I didn't really love the way the bridge pickup sounded in this particular Les Paul. And I probably put 18 different guitar pickups in that guitar, recorded it every single time. Mm -hmm. I can educate myself on what sounded good in that guitar. Once I got that guitar done, I bought another guitar for 200 bucks and started doing it to that. So having your own studio gives you that opportunity to, um, to, to further your education. So when the phone doesn't ring or when you've got downtime, it's probably a good idea for people to be like, you know, experimenting and try, trying stuff out. 
I mean, that's that's what I love doing. I mean, how else can you make those decisions when you're making a record? You know, now I know, okay, this microphone works great in this particular application, or I've never used this pickup in this guitar before, and now I know, you know, a certain wiring, or, you know, I, I, I love just testing gear. I mean, if somebody would pay me to test gear, I'd probably do that all day long. <laughs> it's cool to try stuff out, man. It's Sometimes I see stuff in magazines. I'm like, I don't really want to own that, but I sure would like to try it out. Yeah. I'm the guy that calls and says, Hey, will you send that? I'd really like to try it out and I'll AB it. I mean, that people send me direct boxes and I'll, I'll have a friend of mine come over and play bass and we'll set it up and blah, blah, blah. And I'll go through 18 direct boxes, you know, and then they all sound different. I mean, you make a decision based on this one is clarity. This one is got better bottom. This one's got better top. And, you know, you make those decisions when you're recording and the, the knowledge of that is instantly you know, it's already embedded in you from trying things out. Here's an, this is another Facebook question. Uh, this guy, Ian Combs says in a day and age of shrinking budgets and the prevalence of in the box workflows, how does he, how do you, Joe, how do you manage mixing on your SSL and managing clients expectations? Well, it's a good question. I think that a lot of people think because if you work in the box that you're at their disposal the rest of their life. That's why I personally, I mean, all the records you and I grew up listening to have flaws and those flaws are good flaws. That's what you remember when you massage something to death. If I get a guy who calls me back two weeks after a mix and says, can you turn the hi-hat up a quarter dB? I'm going to say no, because it doesn't matter. Um, I mean, I, I work on a daily rate and it's a pretty good fixed rate, but that means that you need to be around. Like if I'm going to mix your album, I'm not going to mix 10 songs and wait for a month for you to give me an opinion. We're going to get that first song right, which means you have to be on the same page and ready to work like I am. Now, there's a lot of gray area in there. I mean, I, I, if you send me 150 tracks, I can't mix that in a day and I don't want to mix that. Because at that point, I'm sorting through 150 tracks of audio. That's not even mixing to me. That's some lack of production going on. So, so mixing would be you giving me 48 tracks maximum. That's a manageable area. Now, if you get 50 tracks of backing vocals on a chorus and you put a blend together, and I think that blend's not great, it would be great for me to have the other 50 tracks so I can blend them together myself. But there has to be some semblance. I always say, if you can't tell what kind of house you're building, if you just keep piling stuff on there, you got to have a picture of the whole house. So, I mean, I've, I've mixed stuff where I've gotten one guitar performance, 37 guitar tracks. Incredible can't make up your mind. Well, I don't want to sort through 37 guitar tracks. So, so how I manage is I try to make you commit. I don't take on anything that they're not ready. You know, if you're going to go on tour and expect me to be able to recall everything, you know, four months from now, let's wait four months to mix the record. That's sort have to be in my studio with me, but you need to be on board. I mean, it's, it's so easy. I mix all day. I upload it to you and you've got 12 hours till I get back to the studio to, to listen and make a decision. If you can't be bothered to do that, then we probably shouldn't work together. <laughs> and if we do, and you decide something sucks and you want to change it later, I'll do a recall. It's not that difficult to do a recall with analog here and on a console. It's not as easy as it is in the box, but the, the concept of in the box mixing sometimes allows people to just think it's a one button fix. 
And I, I, I mean, I say learn to love it. It's one of my favorite sayings. Learn to love it. Here it is. You know what I mean, the guitar solo is really loud. That's cool. It's going to stick out. If you massage that guitar solo in the track, then it just goes like this. It's in one ear and out the other. You know what I mean? It's, and, and I'm not saying there's some amazing in the box mixers. I, I personally can't do it. I don't understand how they do it. And maybe one day I'll not have a console and I'll figure it out. But for now, I, I prefer the method I do. And, and that's how I manage. I mean, it's, it really comes down to also, it comes down to, you know, you get bands that have $2, but they want to record 20 songs and they need to spend four months doing it. Well, I don't need to work that bad, really. I mean, first of all, we don't need to do 20 songs. That's two albums. Let's cut the crappy songs out. Let's just record 10 songs, you know? And then why do we need four months? Things like that. It's incredible the amount of, you know, the, the amount of, uh, well, with the kind of gall that some people have, they just think you're going to be at their disposal because you have your own studio too that you can stop and do whatever. So it's a very regimented thing for me. I, I, I pick and choose what I work on. Um, I've been lucky, um, but I, I also, I just, I, I have an opinion. Here's the opinion. These songs aren't strong enough. We're not going to do these songs. Or, you know, if you've got 10 bucks, let's work for it. And it's a buck a day. We've got 10 days. Let's make it happen. If you can't do it in 10 days, then maybe it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be happening. You know what I mean? And do you, do you get a lot of pushback from the clients that when you say, no, I think it should be done like this. Or do they generally, do you find that they have respect for, for your opinion? Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, if they hire you to start with, they usually respect your opinion. But I'm not saying my opinion is always right. It's just, for me, if, if I was in a mixture album, you'd send me your music. I would, first of all, I'd, I would listen to it and say, okay, I could do something with this and I really love it. So, okay, let's work together. What's your budget? Okay, here's what we should do. If you're completely reasonable and we're going to, 10 songs and that's what you can afford let's do that instead of 17 songs because you think you need 17 songs for whatever reason um so so we work together but you know what do you want from me this is what i can do and i would work on a song for a day and send it to you and you make comments and not every song is going to be perfect sometimes i'll completely miss the mark and take it around in the end it's your record so i i need to make you happy with your record but at the same time my name goes on it. So if we're looking at apples and oranges, then maybe maybe I don't finish it. Maybe maybe it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it kind of, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, you just have to be willing to, to, you know, I mean, I'm perfectly honest with everybody. And some of the bigger bands might have more time to make decisions and it might take two or three days. I mean, the first, when I was to mix the tool, the first song would take like, First time, I think, took seven days. You know, it would take a day to set up and then a day to mix and then four days of experimenting. And then you go back to where you were on day two and recall it. And 45 minutes later, the song is done. And now you've got your, your sort of, your flow established. And then it doesn't take as long anymore because you know what people are looking for and what they're hearing. Um, when there's not that kind of a large budget. And I mean, a day of song is fairly reasonable unless I'm, if I've tracked it and mixed it, attracted uh, recorded uh produced it then i know where all the bodies are buried so a lot of times i can get two or three songs done in a day you know it really comes down to you know, if you're going to give me four tracks so this is this is perfectly true 16 tracks of bass on a song how long is it going to take you to figure out where the bass is i've had stuff in the comments been that said may sound good we don't know we can't open it you know, I mean, there's so many tracks and so many voices, they just keep recording things. So if I'm going to spend time sifting through that stuff, that's 
that's not creativity to me. That's like, you know, housekeeping. So those things I, I tend to weed out right away. Yeah. Um, Vance, Vance Powell talks a lot about that, getting like horrendous amounts of tracks from people who haven't been able to make a decision. I'm opening tracks from a band right now. It's not that bad, actually. Uh, they they actually did the recording on their own, and they clearly labeled like, you know, this is this mic, this is this mic, this is this mic. It's the same performance. You choose what you want, and we'll go with your opinion. But we just wanted to give you a few different options. And it's like, oh, okay. That's that I can deal with. I'm, yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, if you get four tracks of guitar with completely different guitar sounds, because they've reamped it four times. I mean, to me, it was weird. I, you know, worked on a record where the guy asked me to get the guitar sound on the left and he would get the guitar sound on the right and i'm like that doesn't make sense to me because the guitar sound on the left is based on the guitar sound on the right which is based on the drums is based on the bass so like you know if i'm from producing something I, i'm i'm seeing the whole picture and i'm building it and maybe the guitar sound doesn't work so maybe we recut it or whatever but you, you kind of have to build the house knowing that the walls are like this so if I get 16 tracks of bass on a mix, I mean, what were you listening to when you tracked your guitars? Does bass one and two work with the guitars or bass eight and nine work with the you know what I mean, it's the, the lack of direction and production really. It's a, my friend Matt Hyde basically said it, the mixer has become the producer, mm -hmm. you know, and the mastering guy has become the mixer because now everybody wants stems. So <laughs> you have stems of the mastering guy and you bring your Pro Tools rig in the mastering make i mean how could you not make a decision before mastering for god's sake that's how every great record was done now now so you can't make that decision till the very end and you're gonna go sit in a foreign guy's room that you've never listened to any music in and you're gonna say okay here's my drum stem and my bass stem and my guitar stem and my vocal stem and we're gonna mix the song right here with the mastering guy come on that's just crazy to me that's that's i find that utterly ridiculous yeah that's but i can't deal with that come to you know because people can do it so they will prolong that decision to the very end it's ridiculous aj Steele on facebook says how how does he get such clarity with drums and guitars they never seem to step on each other um well one of the things that i teach in my classes is before you reach for eq phase and panning level that's the three things you really need to focus on I mean, you'd be amazed at how many times somebody came to me and said, man, the, the bass on my record is all whacked out. I can't deal with it. Can you help me out? And I'll ask them to bring the drive in or whatever and put it up on the console and just go ahead and face switch from the bass DI and the bass amp. And I'll go, whoa, dude, sounds awesome now. What'd you do? Call the face switch. You know, or how many times the phase between a snare drum and the overheads is out or to make some toms speak, you know? So I spent a lot of time just looping sections of the song and going through the phase of everything, which is something I did. Even when it's something I recorded, it might've sounded good in or out of phase at the time, but maybe not later on. So phase is the most important thing. So first of all, that's, that's one. And then panning. I mean, you really need to, I mean, I love Chris Ordalci's mixes. He's, he's a three position guy. I can never do that. I don't know how he gets this clarity in three positions, but I'm, I'm a guy that's got every little, I use the fan pod. I want the hi-hat certain amount over here. I want the high, you know, the ride. And, and I'm listening to the drum kit, dialing it in, 
with the overheads. You know, I mean, if you put the overheads up and you'd be amazed at how many times I've seen panning in a session given to me where it's labeled overhead left and right. Well, I don't know who's left and who's right. Is it the drummer view or the audience view? Is the drummer left-handed or right-handed? Right. So, so you put it up and it's such a bad recording, you'd have no idea where the ride symbol is. Or, or it's a good recording and you know the ride is on the right side, but they've panned the ride track itself to the left for whatever reason because it, that's where the microphone came up. So it's paying attention to those type of things. And then that's before I reach for any kind of EQ at all. And then, you know, once I've got the panning in and the placement and the phase of everything together, then then it comes down to bits of EQ. You know? And it's, it's the, the SSL is also a really good clarifier. I mean, running signal through an SSL tightens things up. Running through a Neve, it's a lot slower console. It's got a lot better bigger bottom end but it's loose so certain types of songs when i used to mix on knees would be sloppier and bigger and you compensate for that and uh, but i guess the cell does clarify also it does help hmm. my my wife uh works a regular gig and we get our insurance off of her gig so not everybody's in that position how do you deal with that and and how do you suggest others deal with it who are freelancers trying to make sure that they're covered medically. Part of me has just been always super responsible. So whether it be, you know, there's things like, okay, dental insurance. If you got decent teeth, maybe you don't need dental insurance. But medical insurance is one of those things that could just wipe you out. So you need to have some kind of coverage. Um, owning a studio, the first thing I did was get liability insurance and, and, you know, cover yourself. So if you don't have the money to get a liability policy, buy a safe. Make sure you put your artist work in that safe. Have backups of things. That way you're covered that way. You know, somebody can, and especially in this day and age with lawyers on, on the, uh, you know, every, every commercial is a lawyer want you to collect money. Somebody could theoretically come after you and say, well, my, all this time, you know, that we spent making this record is now gone because your drive is not backed up or messed up or you didn't back it up or you got a fire, God forbid. So, you know, you, you have to just spend your money wisely. I mean, for me, I always was more concerned about, you know, things like the bass player knocks his thumb in the door and can't play. Now what happens? So now I've got to pay for an extra hotel room for the band for a couple of days so the bass player can get sorted out or, you know, then per diems and rental cars and things like that. So it turns out insurance is pretty cheap in the end. And, and as far as medical insurance goes, I, I mean, I, I think I... You know, I, got, I have a, an accountant that I deal with that does my tax preparation and stuff. And, and those are the guys you really want to talk to. But how, how can I make sure I'm covered? You know, sometimes I'll, somebody will say, well, you need a business policy. Or, well, maybe you really don't. You know, I'm not that crazy about everything. But, but uh, medical insurance is one of those things where you can literally be wiped out. So that would be the first thing that I would be concerned with personally. You know, and then if I had my own studio, then and bands were flying to come to me to work in my own place, then obviously I'd make sure I had some kind of insurance that dealt with theft and liability and, and things like that. You know, and then eventually you upgrade your policy to include your equipment as well. You know, I've, I've always had musical instrument insurance, and, and it's not that. Uh, expensive really i don't know maybe i'm just ultra responsible i think that's good i don't we don't, we haven't really talked too much about insurance in the course of you know 30 plus shows 
I mean, I've had a person put his thumb through my door when they closed the door. And now this person can't play. So now we've got to go to the hospital and take care of this person. And now the record is going to get delayed. So what does that entail? And a lot of times it doesn't entail a band that lives local and it doesn't matter. Or maybe you've got some back-to-back gigs and someone's flying in. So it does matter when things get delayed. And, and there are a lot of expenses involved when a band comes and flies to you. They're going on tour. Maybe they can't stay extra days. Or if they can, then there's four guys in a band. Maybe that's four hotel rooms and four times per diem and four days more rental car. And, you know, so paying the three fifty or four hundred fifty dollars a year, whatever it costs for liability insurance, is is uh, is nothing when you're and you're covered. It's, you know, you're covered. I have a guy named Joe Monterello that has uh, insurance programs based for recording studios, and it's a great idea because I don't necessarily have to list every particular piece of gear anymore. I, I have a big umbrella policy. The other thing is, I, I you know, I got sued once a long time ago, and um, it was pretty interesting. I, I rear-ended a guy who. Uh, he was an out-of-work actor, and he stopped his car in the middle of the street around a bend where you couldn't see it coming. He obviously was losing oil, so he hit something, and I slid in the oil and couldn't stop and rear-ended the guy. Turns out that I mean, he was out of work. He was trying to make money. He was sitting in the car in the passenger seat, so instead of getting out of the car, which a normal person would try to get out of the car knowing that they might get hit and get further injured, this guy sat in his car and tried to get and um, luckily, my car insurance company at the time went after the guy and then said it's all fraud, blah, blah, blah. And so he ended up serving me papers and trying to get 35 grand out of me, which at the time I was making five bucks an hour as an assistant, which is, you know, I mean, 35,000 bucks. I was like, well, I got to work for a couple of years to pay that. And, and so that was my first foray into getting an umbrella policy with Allstate for 500 bucks a year. I was covered up to $2 million for stuff like this. So, huh. you know what I mean? So things like that. Um, you know, it's just responsibility, man. It's, it's your responsibility to make sure. I mean, I, I you know, when I, I bought a house from my parents and I, I thought, well, if I die, how can they possibly afford the mortgage? They're not. They're going to get evicted and live on the streets. So I'm going to have to get some kind of life insurance policy. So, you know, it's just, it just makes sense if you're going to do things like that. You need to at least factor in the insurance part of it. And it's always overlooked because we always want to jump in and get to work and <clears throat> not be bothered with that insurance, stuff. Right? I, I'd totally rather buy gear than buy insurance. But yeah, one time when your insurance pays for a new computer because it got a blowout because the transformer blew in the, in the, in the city and it took out your whole computer rig and you couldn't work for two days. I mean, that loss of wages and the amount of money you've got to go instantly spend. I mean, it's totally worth it. So. The uh, lesson here for listeners is get insured. Just cover your ass, however you have to do it. You know what I mean? Like when we were working on the tool record, we put the tapes in a safe every night, and uh, and uh, we bought like a uh, like a little cupboard kind of thing, and it had a lock on it, and it had chains on it. You couldn't get to the stuff, and it was safe. I mean, because you know you work on a record for a few months, and something gets stolen or damaged, water damage, fire damage, whatever. I mean, that's a lot of time invested, a lot of money invested. And so rather than me relying on whether or not the studio we're working at is insured, I would make sure that we were at least covered by putting things away and only, you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. just makes sense to me. I mean, go to Costco and buy a safe. I've got probably 15 or 20 hard drives in the safe I've got right now. I mean, 
and everything is double backed up in case the drive goes because inevitably they always go. Yeah, they do. Somebody calls and says, I mean, it's a form of income too, you know, somebody calls and says, you know, we need to do this mix. Can we're going to put this other vocal on top? Can we recall the mix and blah, 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 do that. And, and you've got copies of things because they can't get it or they can't find it or they never backed it up or the drive they have is broken or they sent, you sent the drive to the record label. You know, it's good to have double backups of everything. Queen's Lullabies, a paralyzed record I had on two hard drives and they, the first drive went, I backed it up and then the backup went. So then I backed it up all in the same week. So obviously there's a flaw and a part in that type of hard drive. But had it not been backed up, we would have lost a lot of information there. Yeah, I tend to, uh, I use a combination of like local backups and cloud backups on a nightly basis just to cover my butt. I work on an internal drive and I have always buy a pair of other drives. And so I have a master and a backup and I work on the internal and back it up to the other two and then put those two in the safe every night. Keep working on the internal the next day, back it up again. At the end of the session, the band has to bring me a drive or two and then I back that up to their drives and they walk away with the record or the label supplies two drives and I give the label the master the backup or the master goes to the label the backup to the band. So there's multiple copies everywhere Then I put my drives away. So I mean, I'm, you know, nowadays I'm buying two terabyte drives, so I've got a dozen records on there or whatever, or more, but hmm. it's in two or three different spots. So. Well, I know we're kind of running out of time and I want to squeeze a couple more questions in with you. Um, what is your, what is your feeling about where we're at today? Not, you know, and this isn't one of those baited grumpy old man questions, but you know, not to not to dive into oh it used to be like this in the old days but like how do you adapt to today's environment knowing you've come up through this more traditional system and that traditional system seems to not be here anymore and whether we're talking about you adapting to today's environment to stay in business or others coming up in this current environment what are your thoughts in general about the business today um, and the future of it? Well, um, I will say there's always going to be talented people making music. I think there's, there's an ease of making music, which is great in some cases, which means anybody can literally have download. You can download Pro Tools free right now and, and, you know, make, make a record. So the, the ease of it is an awesome thing. Not everyone should be allowed to make music. Um, I think a lot of people get into the, the mentality of they want to do this for a living, so they'll do anything. I think being picky, if you can be, is a better thing. Uh, you know, like I always, I always just say, being the town whore. You know, if you're, the, if you're the town whore, everybody's had you, but nobody really wants you. You know what I mean? But if you're a little bit pickier, I think choosing a style of music that you love, and, and I love listening to a lot of different things, but I work on the records that I like doing because those are records that I like doing, uh, that kind of music. Um, people are very, um, it's very easy to get into the music business now. But at the same time, if you, I have a big problem with guys that do 
you know, spec mixes and things like that, because everybody thinks that things are free. If you, if I would say, all right, I'll give you a few examples. One, the guy came to paint my house and said he would do it for free. I'd say, sure, I'd paint it. And I wouldn't really care how it came out because it didn't cost me anything. And then I'd go pay eight grand and the next guy was a good painter and he could paint the house. And if I paid him eight grand, I'd be sitting over his shoulder the whole day saying, you missed a spot. And that's exactly how I make records. I mean, if you want me to do a spec mix, well, if you didn't pay me to do a mix, first of all, why would you even listen to it with open ears? I mean, the, you know, the records that I grew up on, I, I love Jimmy Page's mentality. Like, I was, here's the band, it features the band, we had different engineers, but it was always the band. And, and I love how you work with an engineer to get the end result that you want, as opposed to sending it to 10 engineers to do a mix. Well, how are they going to know what you want? If you could... If your mix is that close, you a spec mix and it's that close, but this next guy mastered it and it's 10 dB louder. So you're going to go with his mix, even though it's the worst mix. It's me. I mean, I'd much rather you say, you just turn up your bass, dude. You know what I mean? Be interactive. That's how great music is made. It's, it involves more than one person. It's, it's a relationship. It's a marriage. So um, the expectation of music being free is a, is a tough thing. I mean, we, we really have to kind of diversify now. I, I mean... It's, it's amazing how many people will go to a recording school thinking they're going to come out and make millions of dollars as a producer, but it really comes down to educating your school and being diverse. I mean, I'm, you know, if I started teaching classes because I want to keep the art going when I think people are teaching in schools that never made records before. Well, there's an advantage. I've made records before. So, but that's also a second form of income. I've done some instructional videos. I, I you know, I help people make products. I, I build guitar pedals here. I don't charge anybody for them. I just build them because they're exciting to make for me and it further educates me on how to do stuff. So maybe five years, 10 years from now, maybe I could go to work for a guitar company and make a guitar pedal or be involved in a product that might actually sell later on. So the, the finding stuff you're interested in and just doing what you like, you know, I think that's, that's what, that's how I've survived. It's just, um, I mean, I'm, I've been lucky, really. I've been lucky to be super busy for a lot of years. and But that still doesn't stop me from, from saying, I'm, you know, I'd like to learn about guitar pickups. So guitar pickups, go to the pawn shop and buy a dozen guitar pickups for 50 bucks and start putting them in guitars and listening to them and figure out. The education part of it is kind of missing to me. It's just it's a too immediate gratification society we're in right now. And people know oh, it didn't sound good. They they immediately go on to the next but why not say well it didn't sound good because why you know i mean nobody really reflects on any of that other stuff to make themselves you know it's like reading cliff notes you know i'd rather read the book (laughs) you know i can get to the end result and figure out what happened faster in the cliff notes so everybody's reading cliff notes these days but i'm gonna read the book life is not cliff notes exactly well cool um this has been great man i've I've enjoyed talking to you and and I hope to maybe, you know, run into you in the future in person. That'd be great. Yeah. Drink beers, drink coffee, whatever, and uh, shoot the shit. But um, yeah, man, this has been awesome. I I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Of course. It's always good to get back to man, you know, uh, and I think this is important what you're doing. You're, You're educating a lot of people too. I mean, where else can you get this kind of opportunity to, to, Talk to. I mean, I listened to Michael Beinhorn's interview right before this and learned so much. You know, reading his book and things like that, and I watched Andrew Shep's and, and some advances, and, and getting that kind of knowledge dealt to you instantly like that is a, 
it's amazing. I mean, it's, it really is, but you have to take that and make it your own knowledge now. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what our well, out of that. I mean, you know, that's what I get out of it. I mean, I just, I talk to, uh, you know, everybody and so many cool ideas and, and ideas that really kind of push me to think, oh, am I, maybe I should change the way I do, I do things. And I can, it's just nice to cherry pick, you know, just to go, Ooh, Andrew does things this way. Vance does it this way. Joe does it this way. Ross does it this way. Just to take it all in is really educational. I think, you know, you have a lot of listeners too that I'm, and some of the questions are really great. So I, I think they're getting what you're throwing at them, you know, and they appreciate it. And I uh, had Jason Gossman. I, you know, honestly, I didn't know about the, the podcast until Jason told me about it. And then I, I listened to one. I was like, oh, man, that's cool. It's really educational. And um, so he was the champion to get me on here. So I have to thank him. We, yeah, we have to, we have to publicly thank him. Well, cool, Joe. Uh, once again, thank you for being on the show, and and I'll run into you at some point in the future. Maybe I'll come down to LA and and I'll, I'll give you a ring, and maybe we can go have a coffee or something. That'd be great. Excellent. I'll let you get about your day, and uh, you and your dog. And uh, in fact, I better go let Moto in. Awesome. We'll say hi to Moto for me. All right, man. I'll Take talk. care, Joe. Thanks, Matt. See ya. Bye. Holy moly, Joe Barisi here on Working Class Audio. Well, that's all the time we have for today, and I appreciate you tuning in. And as usual, as I always ask. Facebook, Twitter, do it, man. Give us some likes, spread the word, tell your friends, tell the students, and uh, I'll catch you next week with a fresh guest. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.